So before the, the service, there was a couple, or is a couple who are dating, and I went up to them and I, uh, I showed her uh, Song of Psalm in the first few verses, and it says, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is poured out. Therefore, virgins love you. Draw after me. Let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. And I said, take this. I want you to look, look your boyfriend in the eyes and read this to him. And this is what she did. <laughs> it was so priceless. Like she couldn't even get it out. I'm like, I so badly just want to. I want to bring you up here and have you read this. And uh, if there's one thing the Song of Solomon is going to do, it is going to leave every one of you with an enduring reminder that God is not prude. Can I get an amen? He is not irrelevant, and He knows exactly what he is doing. And through this book, God intends to speak directly and forthrightly into attraction, into love, into romance, into marriage, into conflict, and especially into sex and sexuality. So I remember, I just want to go way back with you. Uh, it was 2001, and I started at Moody Bible Institute. My wife and I both transferred over there from another college. And um, and uh, there's this, room, this guy on our floor, his name is Brad, and Brad comes up to me and says, Michael, um, I would like to introduce you to your future wife. I know her. Um, this is like prophetic word for you. And I'm thinking, yeah, whatever, Brad. And so uh, we're sitting in the plaza of, of the Moody Bible Institute, and uh, he is talking to me, and he sees this girl at a distance. And I see her as well, not knowing that we're about to talk about her. And my first thought is, she's hot. It's going to be totally transparent. I'd like to tell you that I'm like the most spiritual, godly man on the planet, and I think that was a very spiritual thought. But I look at her, and I'm like... <laughs> I'm like, that girl is very attractive. And uh, so Brad says, Brianne, Brianne, come on, come on over here. And so Brianne uh, walks over, and here's what he says. Michael, I would like to introduce you to your future wife, Brianne. And Brianne, I'd like to introduce you to your future husband, Michael. She says, hi, turns around, walks away, <laughs> shuns me for an entire semester, will not speak to me or respond to me, to the point where I thought to myself, this girl is really, really frustrating and bothersome to me. And, uh, and Brad kept saying, no, she is nice. And now what I, what I came to learn is that about a week or two prior to this, she had just broken up with a boy she had been dating for two years. And her heart was broken, and she was sad, and that, all that season of her life was behind her, and unmet expectations, and pain and heartache. And then here comes Brad, looking at the two of us, saying, oh, by the way, Brianne, I've met the guy that you're ultimately going to marry. And uh, many of you may wonder, like, why or how did I come to Village Church? Well, I started coming to Village Church very simply because during that semester, um, Brianne would bring some Moody students out to the suburbs, stay at their, uh, her mom and dad's home, and she would, Sally would make dinner, and then they'd come to church at Village Church in the morning. And uh, I came to Village Church because a very fine, attractive young woman named Brianne Hurlbert at the time went to Village Church. That is why I started attending the Village Church in 2001. It was not because the teaching was amazing or the worship was awesome or the people were lovely and uh, so kind and encouraging. It was simply because there was a very fine young woman and I wanted to be as close to her as I humanly possibly could. And uh, so I just, I found myself doing whatever I could, inviting myself just so I could be out here. And again, the whole time, she shunned me. 
She would not speak to me. She would leave me hanging regularly. And uh, this, this morning, really I want to go out one thing as we intro Song of Solomon. I want to give you some introductory thoughts. You need to understand the book because we don't want to just make um, disciples who are like generally know about the Bible. I want you to know the Bible. I want you to know why this book is here. Um, but really what I want to focus in on toward the end of this is we want to talk about a biblical view of attraction. Why is there this magnetic pole inside of you towards somebody where you just want to kiss them or more. Um, so I got to give a few uh, warnings for you. Number one, this, this book gets pretty graphic at times. In fact, one-fifth of the sermons on Song of Solomon are going to be dealing directly with explicit sex scenes. Um, and just so you know, you may have some young kids. You may not want them to be a part of this. Um, if your kids are in elementary age, strongly encourage you to bring them over to Village Kids during the next 10 weeks of the sermon series. If your kids are in junior high and high school, um, they already know about most of this, um, but you can make your own decisions on that. Um, second group I want to talk to are singles. I know we have a number of singles, and uh, really about half of this sermon series um, deals with this couple's relationship before they're even married, deals with their wedding um, day and stuff like that, but really this is a book that if you're single, um, what this will do for you is increase your discernment like crazy and, and show you the heart of God on some of these issues. Um, sometimes if you're single and bitter, you can be like, I'm not going to a sermon series on that. Don't be, don't be single and bitter. Um, and statistically, there'll probably be the vast majority of you who are single, not all, but the vast majority, inevitably you will get married. The percentages are extremely high, especially within the Christian communities. Um, you have no idea what God holds in your future. The third group are those of you who have a really rocky marriage relationship. I just want to encourage you with something. Do not harden your heart in this series. I love that God gave us this book in the form of poetry, and poetry just has a way of softening a hard heart. My challenge for you is to receive what God's word says about these things and to soften your heart. And finally, the fourth group of people I just got to give a little caveat to are those who are in abusive relationships. Um, this book, in this sermon series, is communicating primarily to those who have a baseline functional marriage. Um, this is not a book that if you're in an abusive relationship is all of a sudden going to fix things. You need way more counseling help. And so the majority of the counsel I'm going to give is to functional human beings who are not in abusive relationships. So let's get to some of the context. And I want, you to show, I want to show you verse 1. This is how the book starts. It says, the song of songs, which is whose? Solomon's good, you're living. This is a part of um, the wisdom literature in Scripture. These are books that God has um, inspired and ordained to be a part of the Word of God to show us how we should live and feel and think in a crazy world. You have books like Job and the Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. They're called the wisdom literature. And what I have found is that for people who don't even like Jesus or the Bible, the wisdom literature just has a way of living landing that in such a way that anybody can read them and they can receive them and love them and enjoy them. Um, this book is poetry, which means it is intended to be felt with your emotions and experienced, not dissected. So we are going to dissect some things only so that we can fly back 
and feel and experience what God wants you to feel and experience in this. And it's also a song. Now, we don't know the melody. Um, When I get to heaven, I have a few questions for Jesus. One of them is, please play me the audio. I don't want to see the video. Please play me (laughs) the audio of the Song of Solomon. I, I want to hear how this went. And I love that God didn't just write it in a very stoic letter. He took this very personal subject He made it poetry to speak to your heart, and he put melody to it so that it would be imprinted on your soul. Um, This is a very strategic move of God to speak about the most powerful of human experiences, love and attraction and sexuality, and he does it in a way that continues to make it beautiful. Uh, 1 Kings chapter 4, I want you to read this, verses 31. It says, Solomon was wiser than all other men, and his fame was in in all the surrounding nations, and he also spoke... 3,000 proverbs and his songs were 1,005. And I love how this starts. I don't know if Solomon wrote the first very verse of this or if somebody else did, but it calls it the Song of Songs. Of all the 1,005 songs from the most wise man that has ever existed, this is the pinnacle song. This is his masterpiece. This is the one that he is the most proud of. This is the one that was the most meaningful. If you could take one song and say, what is your uh, magnum opus? This is it. This is the one song that stands above everything else that we that I have written. It goes on and says, he spoke of all different kinds of things, of trees, from the cedar that's in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts and of birds and of reptiles and of fish. I want you to catch this. If you consider yourself wise, the wisest of men who have ever existed loved enjoying God's creation, all aspects of it, from sexuality to nature. Um, And so one of the most wise, spiritual persons that has ever existed uh, decided that he would write the greatest of all of his songs on the issue of sexuality, attraction, and marriage. Verse 34, and people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon from all the kings of all the earth who had heard of his wisdom. Why did God inspire this book? Well, I want to talk to you about why I think Solomon wrote this. Um, Basically, Solomon wrote this to celebrate publicly his love affair, his love relationship with the most important woman in his life. Solomon understood when he wrote this that he is not a private figure. And so this would be a song that would be made public and that the people of God would sing for generations and millennia. And so Solomon, you'll notice even just the way the book is written as we get into it, that he he writes this in such a way that it's like a play. It's sort of like a drama. It's almost as if it's like an opera with a different genre of music. And there are characters weaving in and out, and they're singing, and they're doing different things. But uh, really, at the end of the day, he's writing this to celebrate his love with the one woman that means more to him than any other woman um, of all of the many women that he has loved. I think specifically... Um, this is written to um, challenge and to encourage the people of God to think like God thinks on the issues of attraction and sexuality and marriage. Uh, the author, I think, really wanted to combat like two extremes. 
Number one is this extreme that the people of God for millennia have experienced, which is asceticism, which is the denial of pleasure. Um, This is where even in Roman Catholicism, you'll find that priests aren't allowed to get married, which has deep roots back into ascetic worldviews of the early church. A denial of pleasure. Sexuality um, is necessary, but not intended to be enjoyed and delighted in. And how you would come to that conclusion while reading the Song of Solomon is beyond me. Um, But there's this ascetic worldview that is infiltrated much of the world especially, but um, especially the Christian church over particularly the last 1900 years. And the opposite of that is hedonism. And so you find this, that this is just the indulgence of pleasure, living completely for pleasure, pursuing pleasure for pleasure's sake. And what Solomon is trying to do is combat, I believe, two tendencies of humanity from asceticism all the way over to hedonism and say, no, there's a middle ground, there's a better way to understand that drive, that fire inside of you of attraction and romance. And then I want to ask this question. Why did God want this book in the Bible? Because for most 21st century Western Americans, this feels really, really weird. What is the divine author's intention here? I want to give you two reasons why I think God wanted this book to reverberate for millennia amongst the people of God. Uh, Number one, to counter Satan's offensive on attraction, love, sex, and romance and marriage. Satan knows that if he can destroy a marriage, he can destroy a family, and he can destroy a people of God, and he then therefore can destroy a nation and a culture and a civilization. The destruction of everything he wants to tear down begins with destroying marriages. If you're single, let me tell you why this is important, because the marriages around you are infinitely important to God, and therefore they're important to you. Because Satan understands if I can get a couple to coexist together but not to be in love with each other, I can infect their children with bitterness and I can jade them towards the institution that God has created to uphold the gospel of Jesus Christ visibly and experientially. And so I want to just look at you and say, I think God inspired this many, many millennia, even before he revealed the ultimate purposes of marriage, that it's Christ in the church, to go on the offensive against Satan's attacks on the institution of marriage. I want to answer this question, um, allegory or history? So you're going to find this. You're going to read, maybe hear some people talk about Song of Solomon. The most common question I've been asked before um, we did this sermon series is, do you believe that Song of Solomon is a literal true story of a man and a woman, or do you believe that it's an allegory, um, not about two historical figures, that points to something bigger specifically? Um, the allegory approach believes that Solomon represents God, And the bride represents the people of God. And this book is a book that is allegorically telling the love affair between God and his people. So I I just want to be really clear where I stand on this, because you all may come from different perspectives. And I'm going to tell you the perspectives that we're going to be teaching on. Um, This book is clearly written by the author's intention to be about a man, Solomon, pursuing a woman. They call her the Shulamite woman because she's from some place that bears that name. And that these are two historical figures and that this is actually fundamentally a celebration of love and romance and sexuality and attraction. And uh, I cannot for the life of me find anywhere in this book, in the Old Testament or the New Testament, that this book is not about a historical man and woman, but somehow that this book is really about Jesus' love affair with the church. Now, that being said, um, many of you, if you heard these songs, like Jesus is my boyfriend worship songs, you guys familiar with those, right? 
And so a lot of these songs actually derive from an understanding of Song of Solomon that would picture Jesus as the lover of our soul. Remember that song? Jesus, lover of my soul. Like that's not a, that's not a New Testament concept, okay? That is a Song of Solomon concept, okay? And uh, I just kind of go back and I say, you know what? At the end of the day, this song is not primarily about Jesus and his sexual love affair with the church, metaphorically speaking. This is about a husband and a wife and their journey from, we'll call it in modern language, dating to engagement to marriage to fighting to make up sex to legacy. Um, this is a story that, tra- that, that starts from the beginning of their relationship and goes all the way, in, all the way to the end of their time. Three big challenges in reading Song of Solomon. Number one, Hyper, hypersexual, explicit content. I mean, start reading chapters four and five. I mean, really, when you get to chapters four, five, six, it just gets pretty heat, uh, heated. Uh, Jewish men were not allowed to read this book until they were 30 years old um, unless they were married. Reason? Because it is so sexual um, and it is so clear if you just use a little bit of your brain what they're actually saying um, in this. Uh, it is, um, some people have understood this to um, not be from Solomon. Because if you know anything about Solomon's hypocrisy, um, Solomon was a womanizer. Let me just be clear. I want to read to you um, 1 Kings 11, chapter 2. Solomon clung to these foreign women in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. And it says his wives turned away his heart from God. So one of the, one of the challenges of this is how could a man as promiscuous and disobedient to God in the area of marriage and sexuality, possibly write a book like Song of Solomon that is so pure, that is so devoted to the monogamous relationship of one man and one woman in the context of marriage. Like, How could God possibly have allowed Solomon to write this? And there's so many theories, and one person basically said, who of anyone in the world would be more qualified to talk about the beauty of monogamous love than the man who forsook it and experienced the pain of a thousand and five wives. I don't know. Um, I tend to think and believe that the book was written in the very early years of Solomon's life. And uh, in our interpretation, I want to help you understand there's three major characters. Some different people may pop in and out here and there, but there are three major characters. You have Solomon. Uh, you have number two, this Shulamite woman, this bride, this, we call her a peasant who ends up ultimately becoming the princess of Israel. And then you have the daughters of Jerusalem. Now, the daughters of Jerusalem are going to drive you nuts because you're going to try to figure out, okay, are they friends of the bride? Are they this group of virgins? Are they the harem of Solomon, this group of women who are like all pretty and, and make themselves all beautiful and their whole life is spent basically being beautiful for Solomon? We don't totally understand who they are, but here's what we know. They're there to affirm what's happening in the story. Um, and so we're going to get into this, and those are the main characters. And if you're just reading this in your English version, um, you would not necessarily know who is speaking, the man or the woman. But thankfully in Hebrew, um, the nouns and are, are masculine or feminine, so you can actually understand who's speaking, whether it's the man or the woman. And here's my goal this morning. I want to answer one question. What is attractive to a godly man and to a godly woman? What will draw in a godly man or a godly woman? And you might be married and you think, I've already got them. They're already mine. They're stuck, they're, they're stuck with me forever, right? <laughs> Hear me. You want your husband of 50 years to be drawn to you and attracted to you. You want your wife of 50 years to be drawn to you 
and attracted to you. This is going to apply to you who are 13. It's going to apply to you who are 95. And so what draws in or attracts a godly man or woman? Point number one in your notes, what attracts a godly woman? Are you ready for this? Sure, Michael. Sounds good. (laughs) She starts off, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. This is not a holy kiss. Let me be clear. (laughs) It might be holy, but it is not the, oh, hey, how's it going? Oh, how's it going? You know, the Italian kiss. It's nothing like that. So far right now in the context, there's, there's a lot of confusion. It's hard to put the narrative together, right? But here's the best I think we could pull together so far, is that this couple is either betrothed, engaged, or they're pretty far along in their dating process. They have a history together. They are in love with each other. Uh, they have some kind of past connection and relationship where they are able to speak to each other with profound and intimate affection. And so it starts off, and we get this snapshot. I I tend to think this is more in the time of betrothal, and they're looking forward to the marriage because this whole book is moving you towards their wedding day and their wedding night. And she starts off, and she just says, make out with me. And she's looking at him. I want you to get, this isn't just, she's not speaking to the air like, I wish he would just kiss me, right? This is the beginning of a dialogue that's going to happen between the man and the woman. And next week, we're going to pick up the man's responses to her, which are just stellar and amazing. And dudes, you're going to have to take some serious notes because you need to become more like Solomon, myself included, said my wife. Um, (laughs) Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. I want you to notice how forward she is, how unashamed she is of the fact that she has deep attraction. I want you to notice the lack of shame in what she's saying. And so like, there is this, I think, universal experience and weird, confusing things amongst Christian women and whatnot. Um, But one of the things that is good is the desire for attraction, to be attracted to somebody. God has wired singles and married to have attraction where they want to be physically intimate. You're going to notice next week as their conversation unfolds, she has extreme discipline in her behavior. But I want you to notice this, that her desire for a man is good, she is unashamed, and there is nowhere in this book where she is seen as too sexual, too attractive, or too forward in a sense. Now, I want you to catch this, though. This seems to be in the context of engagement. This isn't like some girl who's like, hey, dude, I don't know your name. Like, kiss me with the kisses of your mouth. Like, this is not that. This is actually in the context of a relationship already established, likely that is very quickly moving toward, toward marriage. It doesn't mean that they do make out. I mean, whether you believe people should kiss before marriage or make out before marriage, whatever, that's, you guys can have that discussion. All she's saying right now is, I want you now. I want your body. I want you to kiss me. This is good. You're like wine to me. And what does wine make you do? Call it the biblical buzz. It makes you feel a little happy, a little lighthearted, right? And here's what she is. She's like, that feeling, your love, it's like wine. It gives me that same feeling of excitement and joy, right? And that's what she said. I love, I just love her honesty. And she already feels safe enough that she can be this candid with him. I want to take you 
back in time a few years, we had um, a couple who um, we were doing premarital counseling with, and nobody of you know them, but um, they, were, they were older in life, you know, and so they were mature um, believers. And uh, my wife and I do this test with people. It's called Prepare and Rich. It's sort of like a compa- compatibility test, really, really helpful. And our experience in Prepare and Rich is that it is 100% accurate in the big picture of the story that it tells. So it measures a couple's values. It measures their interests. It measures their compatibility. And just because you may not like, be perfectly compatible doesn't mean you can't get married, but it helps you anticipate some of the challenges you're going to have. And so this um, woman um, comes back, and it is said that she has rose-colored glasses on, and she has an inability to perceive perceive the real state of the relationship, and she has unrealistic expectations of the future. And uh, so I'm sitting in the room. My wife is delivering the results. And my wife says, and I happen to really agree with this. I think when you get married, you, you believe that because you're spiritually mature, that your marriage is going to have no problems. Your marriage will be better than everyone else's. And it's just going to be the best ever. And she said, because it is. And we're like, no, it's not. <laughs> and he's sitting over there like, yeah, she has unrealistic expectations, right? But these rose-colored glasses. And, and uh, I love, I, I mean, everybody, sh- I mean, don't just, like, blame me for this. But, like, I love when we're right, you know? Like, I mean, I didn't want to be right, but I like being right. And so, like, she comes back about six months into the marriage and says, like, I have unmet expectations. Uh, none of my expectations are being met. I thought it was going to be like this. We are supposed to be a godly man and woman. Why can't we do that? Why, you know? And I just sat back, and I'm like, you know what? This is sort of what attraction does. It gives you rose-colored glasses. I guarantee if you stop this woman right here, and you said to her, hey, is your marriage going to be bliss forever? She'd be, it's it's going to be flawless. <laughs> it's going to be perfect. We're going to just be in love, and it's going to be wonderful. And herein is a great just two cents for anybody who is in the throes of premarital attraction. It's not always going to be that easy. And you cannot put on your rose-colored glasses Everything in you is going to want to blind you to the realities of what's coming. And you just need to be smarter than everyone else and take off your rose-colored glasses and enjoy the attraction, but don't let it make you be an idiot. How's that? Good? All right. I want to go back into farther back in time to, the, to Genesis. And uh, we've said this, the Garden of Eden literally is the Garden of Delight, where everything was as it was supposed to be. And I want you to listen to the first words ever penned maybe even ever spoken by a human being, they are poetic words of attraction. Isn't that crazy? The first recorded words of a human ever speaking, it is a poem of attraction. Here's what Adam says. God has just presented naked Eve to him, and he says, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called Isha, soft because she was taken out of man. Let me just translate this for you. She's hot. She's mine. Let's make love. (laughs) That is exactly what's happening right here. And then God's like, whoa, 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 pause. Let me just sanctify this with an actual wedding ceremony. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. Don't worry, relax. And the two should become one flesh. Not yet, not yet, not yet, yet, yet. And the man and his wife, it's like, come on, God, like, let's get to the point. We're both naked, and they were not ashamed. I love this. The, Adam's attraction was thoroughly visual. Now, this is not like going to be the standard, right? You don't get to look at a woman naked and be like, we're getting married now, right? This is, this is pre-fall. She was the only woman that ever existed, so let's just be candid. Don't go too far with this one. 
What I love about this is that there was no blushing in the garden whatsoever. And God is watching this, ordaining this, creating. I mean, he created Adam and he created Eve. It's not like in this moment he was like, Adam's like moving towards the woman to make love with her. And God's like, oh, no, 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 I didn't, I didn't intend it to be used for that. Like, what's happening in front of me? He intuitively does what God created him to do, to visually respond to a woman to pursue her. And I love this, that the woman responded exactly the way she was created to respond. When a man reads you poetry and is kind and before God loves you, you're created to respond by wanting to give yourself to him. This is good. This is right. This is biblical. This is from God. God did this. And there is this magnetic pull inside of every man and every woman that in the right context pulls you to, I want you to see the word in red there, one, the Hebrew word is akad. It is this unity of body, soul, and spirit between two people, and it is beautiful, and it is profound, and we're created by God with an attraction inside of us that pulls us toward akad, and akad culminates in the act of sex, which is super glue for a marriage. The problem is when you super glue yourself to someone who's really annoying. And God is not intended for you to do that. God has put boundaries around marriage, and he wants us to know this. Like, your attraction, it is understandable, it is biblical, it is good. It started in the garden, and it goes on. But here's the deal. You have to use this powerful magnetic force of attraction for good. So in the opening verse, we're brought back to the Garden of Delight. This is almost this pre-fall picture where her, her attraction to him is just pure. So let's get to some so what's. What attracts a godly woman? Number one, his character. Here's what she says. Your anointing oils are fragrant. If you just stopped, and I've heard a bunch of sermons on this, and the preacher stops and says, men, wear deodorant, wear cologne, smell good. That's not actually the point. I mean, the dude probably smells good because he's a flippin' king, right? But here is what she's actually saying. What are the oils? The oil that smells the aroma that is so compelling to her is not his actual scent, it's his name. It's his name. And the name represents the character of the man. And so as soon as she pours out words, she says, I want to be a cod with you. I want to move toward oneness. I want to begin fulfilling um, the, the purpose for which attraction exists to magnetically pull me and culminating in the moment of marriage where we get to experience a cod, right? Just you and I for life. But here's what she's saying. What is drawing, what's drawing her in so profoundly? It's his character. And this is so huge because so, this is like, no duh, if you have grown up with a mom or dad who's reasonably taught you about attraction and romance, but for the vast majority of people, what first draws them in is their body, and what keeps them is their body. It's crazy. And yet God steps back and says, here's the deal. Your name The name of a man, the character of a man, the godly character of a man is the first thing that should summon you to him. I love this. Somebody once said, a godly character should not need to be uncovered. It should be blatant and evident. A godly character should not be something where you're like, well, if you just spent more time with him, then you would begin to see it. A godly character should be blatant and it should be evident. Number two, his reputation. She goes on, she says, uh, uh, the chorus, I'm sorry, says, we will exalt 
and rejoice in you. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. Now, who is the chorus? Like, the daughters of Jerusalem, it's this group of ladies, apparently, who just pop up and they start singing. And here's what they're saying. They're saying, you know what? Uh, the virgins love you. There, there's a whole bunch of women that want you, but the therefore is therefore because they love him because of his name and his character. There's something so admirable about this king. Now, you might think, no, they want him because he's a king. And there are going to be many women who are going to want the man because he's a king. But these virgins are a little bit different. These are, these are apparently more righteous women who love him and would love to be his bride because of his name, because of his character, because of his reputation. I just want to ask you, you're attracted to somebody. This is particularly for those of you who are dating. What is his reputation? When I met Brienne, um, remember I told you like she kind of shunned me for like a whole semester? And I would start meeting people who knew Brienne. I have never in my life met a more well-respected person than my wife. People would speak of her maturity, her depth, her teaching, her communication, her ability to care for people, her love for God, her love for for missions. Uh, I had never to this day heard one person spoken more positively about than my wife, and I met her when she was 18 years old. This young woman had a reputation that was unlike anybody else I had ever met. And it was of struggling because I'm like, okay, everybody else thinks she's godly, but she won't speak to me. Doesn't she know how amazing I am? Like, this doesn't make any sense to me, right? If she was so smart, she'd realize I'm the best thing that's ever happened to her. <laughs> Someone's reputation should not need to be uncovered. It should be blatant, and it should be evident. And all of this, number three, is humility. Go on to verse seven. She says, tell me, you whom my soul loves, where you pasture your flock. So there's something about a woman. She kind of just strips you down to the core of who you are. You might be married to a CEO of a huge organization. You might be married to the pastor of the church. You might be married to somebody who's really important wherever they go to work. But when you come home, it's just you, right? And I love that the way he relates to her is not as king, but as shepherd. He relates to her not out of his position. He doesn't say to her anywhere in this book, don't you know who I am? But there is a humility to him. Let me me just tell you, ladies, you find a man with a godly name, a godly reputation, and humility, you will have a man who will be an amazing husband one day. Because nobody's a good husband at first. But one day, (laughs) he can grow to be an amazing husband. I think so many women miss some of these most important things and out of desperation bypass character, bypass reputation, and bypass humility because they have a desperation inside of them that makes themselves for something less than what could be or what God would want for them. So ladies, I just have a question for you. What is magnetic to you? What draws you in powerfully? Dudes, what attracts a godly man? Verse two says this. For your love is better than wine. She says this, your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out before you. Therefore, the virgins love you. Verse 7, tell me you whom my soul loves. I want you to hear what attracts a godly man. Godly words. Encouragement. Do you notice in these short verses how highly she speaks of of her future husband? You are. You are. 
you are, you are. I want you to hear me. A man will get encouragement. May it be from his wife. A man will be built up. May it be from his bride. And God has wired men. I'm speaking personally because I understand how dudes are wired. God has made men and made made a man in such a way that when his bride encourages him and speaks to him and draws out the best in him, he is made to even rise to that standard and want to rise to that even more. Men respond in profound ways in encouragement. And inversely, men run away from wives who criticize, complain, criticize, complain. Solomon said it best. Uh, Better to live in a corner of a house than with a contentious woman. Better to live on the roof of a house than with a contentious woman. And basically Solomon makes sense for us that um, what draws a man to a wife, to a woman, um, one of these things that will even reignite attraction is how a woman uses her words. Number two, it's her her receptiveness. Look at verse four. Draw me after you. Let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. And you may think these are the chambers where they go make love. And again, you're going to see, I think it's in chapter 2, verse 7, they restrain themselves on uh, on the actual um, making love. They reserve that for the wedding night. Um, But here's what you have. You have this woman who is saying, wherever you take me, I'll go. Lead me. I'll respond to you. So, ladies, let me just be straight with you. Um, You're like, I want my husband to be more romantic. I want him to be more this. I want him to be more that. And I really believe that in most guys, there is a capacity to be attracted to their wife and to be romantic. And I'm going to tell you what I think the one thing is, in 99.7562% of guys, that's like my statistical average, it's, it's legit, that makes them not pursue you with romance. You know what it is? Fear of rejection. Fear of rejection. Every guy that I've ever talked to who's single, and I'm like, why don't you ask her out? What if she says no? I mean, it is inside of us that to be rejected is one of the greatest fears of our life. Even on little things. Like, who cares if she says no to you? Your identity is not whether she says yes, I'll go out with you or no. There's something about a dude, though, um, that receptiveness and confidence of receptiveness is a powerfully attractive Thing. And then we just got to call this what it is. Uh, what so attracts this shepherd king? It is her body. <laughs> I mean, we would be fools to say that men are not unusually visual, visible <laughs> or visual, sorry. Verse five, she says, I am very dark but lovely. Don't you love her security? She's like, I'm not perfect. Don't get me wrong. I mean, who is, right? But, but I am pretty darn awesome. And I think she has this mindset hey, King Solomon. You'd be lucky to have me. Are you kidding me? I'm pretty darn lovely. I love that she believes that she's lo- lovely. A question has been asked, like, what is beautiful to you? And uh, can I just give you the easiest answer? Here's what's beautiful to you. What kind of woman am I attracted to? What kind of man am I attracted to? Here's the answer. The one you're married to. That's it. There is no other standard. There is no other expectation. And God has actually created you in such a way that you have the full capacity to be 100% attracted to your husband or to your wife and to their body. Isn't that amazing? And so he looks at her, and he thinks she is absolutely beautiful. 
But I want you to catch something because the daughters of Jerusalem um, likely are these women who don't work. Um, they get pretty all the time. They have no suntan whatsoever because um, they don't work. They're not out in the fields. And this was their stereotypical, stereotypical like, perception of beauty. And beautiful women are pale and soft and they don't work and they just look pretty all the time. And really they are all you can see. There's not a lot of depth there. But Solomon, I love this. He's like, you know what? I'm not looking for the stereotypical beauty. He wants something that goes even deeper than that. And then she even says to them, don't gaze at me because I'm dark. Like, have you ever felt like, I'm sure most women have, like you go into a group of women who are stereotypically beautiful and you like, feel like they're looking at you and they're judging you. I've never been a woman, so I don't know, but I've been told that that's like an experience that some people have. She looks at them and says, like, don't, don't look at me. Stop staring at me. I know I don't meet your expectations, but in whose eyes is she lovely? His. And she has every bit of confidence that when he looks at her, he sees her as beautiful and he sees her as lovely. And then she gives them an expl- explanation. Um, the sun has looked upon me. I'm tanned because I've been outside. My mother's sons were angry with me and they made me keep her the vineyards, but my own vineyard... I have not kept. I have not been able to spend every day of my life for the past 25 years looking pretty because I've actually had a job to do. Thank you very much. I think that's what she's saying. Like, <laughs> I tend to think there's a bit of sass in this one. A beautiful well in the desert will draw you after itself if you're thirsty, but it will never keep you. It won't keep you satisfied. It won't keep you there. And this is where Solomon is so privileged and blessed because not only does he find someone who is truly lovely, but she's also a deep well. Number four, her work ethic. You show me a woman who does not work, and I don't mean work like you have a job or you go nine to five. I just mean you show me a lazy woman, and I'll show you a man who doesn't respect her. You want to know what attracts this man to this woman He has all of these virgins and a harem and everything he could ever want and all of these perfectly beautiful, shallow, empty well women. And one day, he's probably incognito and he's out in the fields and he sees this dark, tanned woman who has character and she has a work ethic. And I just want to tell you right now, men respect women who work hard. Again, hear me. Am I saying that moms don't work hard? I'm saying no. Moms is a hard-time job, right? Amen, mom, right? I'm not saying you have to have a nine-to-five job. I'm just saying men respect women who work hard, and it's really attractive. It's very attractive. And she even gives an explanation. They made me keep her in the vineyards. Her brothers were jerks. Maybe she shouldn't have had to work as hard as she did, but there's something about her ethic. You, You may not know this, but did you know almost every single godly woman in Scripture works and is a hard worker? You go from beginning to end, and when you keep finding these women, they're working hard. And this is just a principle that you see in Scripture, and it culminates with the Proverbs 31 woman who was industrious, and she worked hard, and she raised kids, and she ran businesses, and she did a whole bunch of other stuff. But you really want to see a man grow an attraction to somebody. If you're lazy, and you're an empty well, and you're just pretty on the outside, that will not be what attracts a godly man. It may attract a worldly man who all they want is your body, but it will not attract a godly man who can actually satisfy your soul. What is magnetic to you? What draws you in? I want to close with two things. I want to talk about desperation, lust, and attraction, because there's a difference. Desperation is longing for someone out of emptiness. Desperation is when you have a void. I need a man. I need a woman. 
Years ago, there was, um, when I was a youth pastor, there was a girl who um, had recently come to Christ, and she came to me, and uh, she said, hey, um, Pastor Michael, there's this guy, and I'm starting to date him, and uh, he really wants um, to, for me to, to, to basically go way too far sexually. And I looked at her, and I said, dump the guy. He's a total tool. Get rid of him. Like, leave him alone. Walk away, right? And she said, but you, you don't understand. He really actually does love me. I just said, you don't understand. <laughs> He's an idiot. Walk away. The dude doesn't love you. He loves your body. And she said, he's the only person in my life that I really feel like wants me. And I said, Jesus wants you. Your future husband wants you. Okay, This guy is a loser. Walk away. And I remember I looked at her and I said, I said look, girl, this is a crossroads for you in your life right now. You're desperate. And you're going to do dumb things. Because I always say this, desperate people do dumb things. Always. And this is a crossroads for you. Will you follow Jesus and wait on him? Or will you be desperate and pursue this guy and give him what is not his? And at the end of the day, she ended up um, leaving the church, leaving youth ministry, leaving it all, and following this guy. And to this day, still not walking with Jesus. And she had to make, it, she had to make a decision. Am I going to be desperate? Or am I going to um, follow Jesus? It's interesting because <clears throat> in the Song of Solomon, uh, in I think it's in verse six or seven, uh, verse seven, um, here's, here's what she says. Tell me, you whom my soul loves, where do you pasture your flock? Where do you make it lie down at noon? And she says this, why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? You know what she's saying? Prostitutes and whores veil themselves, and run after these shepherds trying to get some out of desperation. She looks at him and says, I will not play their games. I will pursue you with integrity. I will run after you in a way that honors my God and your God. Isn't this awesome? Like, do you love this girl's guts? Like, she is awesome. She has integrity. You want to know what draws a godly man in? This kind of integrity. So many illustrations, but I'll stop there. Lust. It's attraction solely based on physical appearance. It's automatic, immediate gratification. And it's always empty, and it always leaves you feeling worthless, inevitably, because you're not created to give in to lust. But godly attraction is a whole separate category. Godly attraction is a God-infused gravity that pulls you toward a cod toward this oneness. It is a good thing. And when you're being sucked in by it, take off your rose-colored glasses because that'll also make you do dumb things, right? <laughs> but when you're being sucked in by godly attraction towards a man or woman and this thing is culminating and bringing you toward a cod, this is a good, God-ordained, beautiful thing. And here's what's going to happen. If you're single, you're dating, you're going to find that you're going to have this magnetic pull to different people. And here's what you need to do. When they don't measure up to the standards that you know they need to have to be a godly husband or wife, you cut it off and you walk away. Because very quickly, it's going to turn into desperation. You may tell me, oh no, this is godly attraction, but if you're going after somebody who does not have a godly name or godly character or humility, um, who does not have the kind of things that a godly person would have, it then becomes desperation. Most people mask desperation and godliness by saying, 
oh no, they're better than you think. And I'm just telling you for most of the time that's, that's wrong. Desperation will make you do dumb things. Lust will leave you empty. But godly traction with godly boundaries, when it culminates in a cod, is going to be a beautiful thing that God ordained. And it is awesome. Some of you, you're thinking to yourself, um, Michael, you're not talking about Jesus enough. Um, what does this have to do with Jesus? What does it have to do with God? And I want to just leave you with these thoughts. Um, how you understand and pursue attraction is one of the most spiritual things you will ever do. When you stand before God, I want you to hear me. You will first and foremost, I believe, be accountable for two things. How well did you love Jesus and how was your marriage? If you're not married, you'll get a third category. But but if you're married, how is your relationship with Jesus and how is your marriage? And if you look back at Jesus and say, well, I didn't divorce him, I didn't cheat on him, that's not what he's going to ask about. What this book tells us is that God, no matter your age, is deeply concerned with whether or not you are drawn and attracted to your bride or your groom. And that God wants and has created marriage to not just be an institution that you partake in, but to be an institution that you fight for and enjoy. And your legacy So much of this in your children and how they view marriage and how they view you, your spiritual legacy, hear me, it is bound up in your ability to be attracted to your spouse no matter how young or old they actually are. And so I would look at you and say, you who call yourself mature in Jesus Christ, are you pursuing your wife? Are you responding to your husband? Are you developing attraction in this relationship? Because you will see from beginning to end, from before marriage to when they get married to when they've been married for a while, this powerful magnetic force is a part of their marriage and it's what they fight for. And I would just look at you and say, if you want to honor Jesus in your marriage, some of you are going to have to really amp up the romance game because God cares desperately about how you approach that. And if you feel helpless and you feel like you don't know what to do, We would love to just counsel you. And I know we could probably actually counsel everybody in this whole room and everybody could use a little bit of help. Don't give me an amen on that one because you'd all be like, yeah, it's pretty true. But if you really seriously need help, get help because this is super important to Jesus Christ and therefore it's super important to us. And again, if you're single, you're like, this doesn't relate to me. Pray for your friends who are married. Encourage them. Pray and encourage the singles in your life who are starting to date. Hold them to a higher standard so that they can pursue a cod and oneness one day in a way that brings them the most amount of glory to Jesus Christ. And with that, I'm going to pray, and I'm going to let Craig do communion. And I'm really excited to see how Craig follows up with communion after a sermon on attraction from Song of Solomon. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for being so infinitely wise. None of this came to you as a surprise. I love all the way back in the garden, this was a part of the plan that a man and a woman would be drawn to each other, attracted, culminating in marriage. And yet, God, this, the fall has turned us on each other, causing much, caused much blame, heartache. But God, as followers of Christ, we want to see the effects of the, vol- of the fall reversed in our marriages and our lives. And so, God, may even this series just be a launch, may it be a kickoff to maybe a new season in some marriages where men overcome fear of rejection. 
and learn to love and pursue again and, and wives overcome bitterness and unmet expectations and learn how to build up again. And Lord, for those who are dating or about to date, may you give them a spirit of wisdom and grace as they bring much glory and honor to Jesus Christ. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. 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 Amen.